The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Let's read together in God's Word from the Old Testament prophecy of Joel, and we'll read from Joel 2, verses 12 to 17, to the middle section of Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. And let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, eat between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? As far the reading of this portion of God's inspired word may be seated. We'll be taking as our text and considering with the Lord's help Uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 12, 13, and 14. So our text is Joel 2, verses 12 to 14. It begins, as we've just read, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. 1596 is a year that marks one of the greatest revivals in Presbyterian history. It was 36 years after the Reformation had come to Scotland, 24 years after John Knox had been laid to rest, and yet the tide, the spiritual tide, had at the end of that century begun to recede. So there were many fears and forebodings. You had the threats of of, uh, Papist Spain and the possibility of an invasion. There was uh, internal political uh, disharmony within the nation itself, but within the church as well, there were all sorts of difficulties that were arising, departures, threats of episcopacy, uh, people that were becoming lax in terms of the standards of godliness, and so on. But above and beyond all of this was the worst of all, and that was defection, spiritual defection, within the gospel ministry. And though the Lord was still raising up good men like the two Melvilles and Robert Rollick and Robert Bruce of Edinburgh, who, by the way, would live to see another revival in 1630 at the Kirk of Shots just before he died. Nevertheless, the Lord was, was displeased. He had a controversy with his own house. And the people of God, led by ministers who had drifted in their own souls, had fallen into a season of declension. And so an overture came 
that there might be a time set apart for fasting and prayer. And 400 ministers and elders were convened for the General Assembly that year. And John Davidson of Prestepens uh, was called to preach, which he did from the prophet Ezekiel. And he opened up the sins, first of all, of the ministers and elders, as well as the church as a whole. That was accompanied by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in great effusions that resulted in that general assembly becoming a virtual bacchum. At the end of the sermon, complete silence for an extended period of time. All that could be hear, heard was the, the flood of tears and of sobs and so on. That gave way to further seasons of prayer and of more preaching. And the blessing that the assembly enjoyed spilled over into the presbyteries. And these meetings were perpetuated. It eventually trickled down into the congregations and into the communities within Scotland. And God took his church at a, at a very low ebb, and he raised it up by his, the strength of his own right arm and endued her once again with power and with a sense of the presence and majesty of the Lord himself. Well, as we turn our attention to Joel chapter 2, we find the church in not dissimilar circumstances to what I've just described. Uh, the people of God have defected. They have taken on the ways of the world. They have corrupted the ordinances of God. They have fallen prey to all sorts of wickedness. And guilt is to be laid chiefly at the feet of those Old Testament ministers, priests and Levites, and so on. And so the Lord in his mercy, as he has done over and over again, sends his word into the midst of that darkness in order to shine a bright light. And he equips uh, his servant Joel with a message to bring to the people of God. And we find it here uh, in, this, in this book. You'll remember the context. You look at, at chapter one, and there's this catastrophic calamity that is being described, right? There's the, all of the ravaging of the locusts, and there's famine, and there's threat of invasion, and so on. There's devastation and destruction. And as you come into chapter two, all of that stuff continues. But more than all of that, What's noted is that these things are from the Lord himself. It's the Lord who's bringing these things. In Joel chapter 1, verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as, the, as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come, or just prior to our, our text in verse 11, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? So it's, it's out of that kind of bleak backdrop that we get the words of our text. And the Lord comes to his church, and he says, turn. Turn to the Lord. Right? That's the overriding theme of of these verses in verse 12 turn ye even to me with all your heart verse 13 turn unto the lord your god turn as most of you i'm sure know is one of the most common old testament words for repentance right turning from sin unto the lord so our theme is this call to turn to the lord and we see three things first of all turning to the Lord with a whole heart. 
So first of all, turning to the Lord with a whole heart. Look at the text. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your hearts, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. What's happening here? Well, first of all, the Lord is the one who is initiating this. The Lord is the one who is calling for us to return to him. He is the one who is coming and saying, turn to me. Now, that's relevant because when we really begin to do business before the Lord and see our sin, the temptation is to do the opposite. The temptation is to turn from the Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. As Peter said, right? Our temptation is to do that. But the Lord comes and he says, no, turn. The Lord is the one who is always, he's always the one who is dealing with us. And he, he brings us into straits in order to bring us to himself. The Lord pushes us, as it were, into the path of blessing. When he's intending to bless us, he will always humble us. When he's intending to raise us up, he will always put us down and drive us to himself. And quite so, because he gives more grace to the humble. I mean, the language of Joel is the language that we have in 1 Peter. It's the language that we find over and over again. But the Lord doesn't just initiate this. The Lord also instructs us. So he doesn't just say, turn. He tells us how. How is it, Lord? How do we turn unto unto him? And he says, this is how. With all the heart, with all your heart, with all, with fasting, with weeping, with, with mourning. If you're going to turn in truth, re, really turn, turn in terms of what the Bible itself prescribes, it will begin with the heart and all of the heart. So not a divided heart. Right? This is the temptation. We think, well, we're going to turn to the Lord, but simultaneously we're turning to all sorts of other things. We may be turning to things within ourselves. We may be turning to other people, but we're not turning with all of our heart to him. We can turn with half a heart to the Lord. We can be half-hearted, limping, going through the motions, mouthing words, keeping up certain duties, but we're drawing nigh to the Lord and our heart is far from him, as Isaiah says. No, this is the heart of the matter. We have to have a whole heart in coming to him. Notice verse 13. It says, and rend your heart. So it's the picture of, of lancing a, a putrefying sore in order to cleanse it. The Lord is saying, come, lay open your heart before me. Expose yourself in your innermost being dissect your heart, empty the contents of all that is there, empty it before the Lord. Requires searching our hearts, doesn't it? Searching him. Are are you more concerned about your own sin than you are the sins of those that irritate you? Are you concerned more about your secret sins than you are the outward and external sins? of other people. You can be kind of aroused when you see things in other people, but our hearts lifted up in that. We begin to compare ourselves among ourselves, which is not wise, as Paul says. We begin to become inflated, and we, 
we begin to, to get schismatic even and drawing lines and a partisan spirit and things that come with that. We need to rend our hearts. We need to expose and search our thoughts. What are the sins of our thoughts? How about going a layer deeper? The sins of our motives. What motivates us in what we say or don't say and do and don't do? The sins of our ambitions as well. I mean, all of these things have to be addressed. You know, where, is, where are the tentacles of pride reaching down in and wrapping themselves around your life and soul? What about unbelief, your, your refusal to acquiesce and submit to the Lord or to be confident in his promises or your selfishness? And we could multiply all day long all of the areas and crevices within our own soul that need to be rent before the Lord. We sin against light. I'm a minister. Some, of, some here are ministers. Many students for the ministry here. How much light do we have? All that we know, all that God has taught us, and yet how we live so far below the light that we've been given, so far below the privileges. Our sins against love, the Lord's love toward us in Christ Jesus, and not just generic, but all of the, the, the detailed ways in which that has been expressed to us. Our sins against love, our sins of omission. You'll remember that, that, uh, that this is one that is often uh, overlooked uh, by many. Bishop Usher on his deathbed said, forgive my sins, especially the sins of omission, the things left undone. The prayer closet, which is neglected, if not entirely, certainly proportionately to what it ought to be given. The time for not only reading, but reflective, meditative, affectionate thought about the word of God and its application to our soul and a whole host of, of other things. Notice that he says, rend your heart and not your garments. He's saying this is sincerity, not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can look right on the outside. We can we can paint a fire on the side of a wall in a room, and it, it looks good, but it gives no heat. It's not real. He's saying, don't be content with just going through the external motions, but rather we are to come with sincerity. I mean, the Pharisees were experts. They fasted twice every week. They would disfigure their faces, and they would act very pious, but their, ha their hearts were as high as the heavens. They weren't humbled. Under, under the Lord himself. Now, this passage is saying that turning to the Lord with a whole heart means that we need to get low. We need to get low before the Lord, truly low. And there's a, there's a warning in this for me and you, a searching warning. Because if you go through the exercises that have been set out by your seminary today, and if you do so, without true humility before the Lord. It's not as if, well, that's just a loss. If it's without humility, it will absolutely and most certainly result in the hardening of your heart rather than the humbling of your heart. You will come into a season of prayer and fasting, cool, and you will come out the other side stone cold. You will have grieved the Spirit of God. Brothers, we have to get low before the Lord. We have to turn to the Lord with our whole heart. He says, and to turn to him with fasting. You know, our fathers 
referred to days of prayer and fasting as days of humiliation. You'll be familiar with that. And quite rightly, because prayer itself is true prayer is humbling, isn't it? It's humiliation and dependence before the Lord, the suppliant coming and and asking and seeking from the Lord's hand. Now, when that prayer is conjoined with fasting, that humiliation and dependence are accentuated because we are, in the words of Scripture, we're afflicting our souls while abstaining from things with our bodies. We're setting aside or suspending natural appetites. Why are we doing this? Because we are absolutely starving for God's blessing. We're starving to see him, to be near him, to behold him, to be, to be receiving from him the bounty that he, he gives to us. And we crave that more than we crave our daily bread. And so it's shelved while we get on our faces before the Lord. But it's not just turning with our whole heart and turning to the Lord uh, with fasting, but he says, and with weeping and with mourning. This is inward grief. So this isn't theoretical. This isn't something you just put on paper. It's inward grief that that breaks out into outward expression. We We can take the idea of prayer and fasting, and it can be like an object that we pick up. And we turn it around and we, we study it. And we want to understand it. What does it entail? And, you know, how does it work? And what is the function that it has? And so on. And here we are looking at it from the outside. That's not what you've been called to do today, my friends. The Lord is actually calling us to enter into that. We're to enter into this with our Christian experience. So it's this weeping and mourning makes crystal clear. This is, this is not something that is detached. This is not something sterile. This is not something that is merely theoretical. I mean, look at the language that you have all through chapter one. Lament, verse eight. Lament, mourn, be ashamed, howl, lament, lie all night in sackcloth. We could go on and on. You come to this text and it's saying weeping and mourning there's something to be said for this there's you know emotional expression as an end in itself is utterly worthless it's bankrupt but when there's real spiritual realities there will be an impact upon us paul's clear when he's writing to the corinthians and saying corinthians 7 and he's discriminating he's discriminating between worldly sorrow for sin and godly sorrow for sin and he says you need to be clear on the difference between these two things study them carefully because worldly sorrow it has all the marks of sorrow it leads to death whereas godly sorrow issues forth into repentance and you notice the language of what that godly sorrow looks like in second corinthians 7 He says in verse 11, for behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sorrow. All right, Paul, tell us what does sorrowing after a godly sorrow look like? Listen to the language. What carefulness, right? It's it's the idea of anxiety. It wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. 
That's the description of godly sorrow for sin. That's the fruit of true gospel repentance. Well, we need to examine ourselves as to whether those marks are found in us. And if so, to what degree they are found in us. He says, with weeping and mourning. And so here you have turning to the Lord with a whole heart. We, we see that turning is bowing. Turning to the Lord is actually bowing in our souls before the Lord. When we are high, when we're lifted up in our, in our own hearts, when we're high, we are always far from the Lord. He knoweth the, he knoweth the, the proud from far off, the scripture says. He resists the proud. So if in our souls, whatever, whatever is seen outside, inside, if we're up, then we're far from the Lord. But when we're low, then we're brought near to the Lord. We're actually brought near to the Lord. You think of how this comes out. Psalm 34, the, the Lord says that he is nigh. He is near those who are of a broken spirit. Or Psalm 51, where he says that he will not despise those who have a broken and contrite heart. Or Isaiah 66, where, it said, where the Lord says that he will look upon those who have a broken spirit and who tremble at his word. All of that is nearness. We're drawing near. We're turning to the Lord by going down, by being lowered before him. And this is gospel logic, which we should recognize almost immediately. Because what we're doing and what the Lord is calling us to do in his word is to align ourselves with what the Bible tells us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that the Spirit comes to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. The Bible tells us that the Spirit magnifies the Son. And so the Spirit's ministry is to lift up and extol the majesty and glory of God in Christ and to bring us low. And so we are, we are walking, we are aligning ourselves in this, in this passage with, with all that God tells us about how he works through his spirit. So first of all, turning to the Lord with a whole heart, but then also secondly, turning to the Lord with a sight of his grace. Look again at the passage, verse 13, partway through verse 13, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of evil. Notice that word for. He's calling us to turn with a whole heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning. Why? Here's the reason. Here's the motivation. Here's the, here's the Lord drawing us. Here is the Lord persuading us to turn to him. He's saying, do all of this, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and, great, and of great kindness. And repenteth him of the evil. And so this turning, this repenting, includes not only what we've seen thus far, but it includes the sight of God's grace. Our catechism has it right. Shorter catechism, question 87, when it's giving us the definition of repentance unto life, it includes those words, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Repentance includes the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. After all, no one 
would turn to anyone whom they thought was calling them in order to destroy them. No, the Lord is saying quite to the contrary. The Lord is coming and saying, I am giving you, my friend, an assurance of a warm reception. That the Lord delights to see sinners come to him. To see them come again and again and again. That the Lord rejoices over sinners coming to him. I mean, if the angels in heaven, that, that innumerable throng of incredibly powerful beings, crack the heavens open with rejoicing over the repentance of a single sinner. Do you not think it's the case in a measure for the believing people of God who come penitently again and again to humble themselves and to look afresh to the Lord and to his mercy? The Lord says you will never suffer loss by going down, by being broken, by laying yourself low in the dust. You will never suffer loss that the Lord is gracious and merciful. Indeed, if anything, this, this, this reinforces true repentance. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that the goodness of the Lord leadeth to repentance. That if anything, the fresh sight of his willingness to receive us mercifully and graciously deepens repentance within our souls, both in terms of sorrow for sin, because nothing will break the heart more than seeing our sin in light of the cross and all that it's cost the Lamb of God, but also in terms of clinging to him, clinging to him and holding fast to him as well. When the Lord says what we have here in verse 13, what is he doing? He's setting before us his glory. You'll remember in Exodus, Moses comes to the Lord and he says, show me now thy glory. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. When the Lord goes to answer that petition, what does he say? Verse, uh, chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, and so on. That goodness of the Lord is his glory. His goodness is his glory. He's saying, look, behold, see my glory. The Lord says, I am the one who who comes bountifully to bestow pardon, forgiveness, cleansing, tenderness, and mercy upon my people. It says that he repenteth of evil. It's not as if the Lord changes. He's immutable in his very being. God's mind doesn't change. It's rather the sinner's mind that changes. It is we who change. And because of that change, what we discover in terms of the manifestation of God to us is reflected in that change. We need to see sin in light of of the cross. A day of mourning, the Lord is telling us. A day of mourning is temporal. Day of mourning is, is brief. Uh, the, the, the night watches of tears that are shed and so on. They pass. That joy comes in the morning. That the days of mourning are limited. But my friends, the fruit is eternal. We're broken before the Lord. We humble ourselves before him. 
we get down and our, our soul is sacked. And the Lord says, I'm going to bring fruit out of this temporary anguish that will be eternal, that will endure, that will last. The joy. Here you have a broken heart, which is emptied, full of its sin. And the Lord says, I'll come to that broken heart. And the oil of joy will be poured into it. The salve of the gospel will be applied to it. So we see turning to the Lord with, with a whole heart. We see turning to the Lord with a sight of his grace. And then thirdly, we see God turning to us with a blessing. God turning to us with a blessing. Verse 14, who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and drink offering unto the Lord your God. Isn't this beautiful? The Lord is saying, we rend our hearts. And the Lord rends the heavens. And in rending the heavens, he pours out copious blessing upon his people. He bestows mercy upon them. It says here, who knoweth if he will return and repent. This isn't expressing some sort of doubt. It's rather the expression of a humble hope. It's, it's, it's confident expectation expressed with the humility that comes from the previous two verses. It's an anticipation of all that the Lord will do. And leave a blessing behind him, the passage says. Well, what blessing is this? What blessing might the Lord bestow on his people who are turning back to him, who are turning from their sins, their heart sins, and everything else, and who, who, are, who are setting their faces toward him? What blessing is this? Well, in the context of all that you see here, you have the, you have the locusts that are devouring all the fields, and you have the famine, and you have all these other things going on. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring a blessing, the fruit of the earth, but notice, for God's altar. I'm going to bring a blessing that ultimately culminates at my altar. He's speaking of the meat offering and the drink offering. And so the concern for God's people is not their table, but God's table. The concern is not, you know, I'm going to be recovered from my afflictions, from my trials, from the hardships. The Lord's going to bless me in all of the ways that the world would recognize and so on. No, the, the believer is saying, that's not what I'm here for. That's not what I'm looking for. That's not what I'm turning to the Lord for. We want a blessing that will redound to his glory. We want a blessing on his house. We want a spiritual blessing that will come down upon our souls and upon the souls of his people and that will magnify God and his majesty, that will give us a pervasive sense of his presence and power among us that will enliven our hearts to worship and to adore him and to spend and be spent in the service of him with all that is within us. Isn't that what happened with Hezekiah? Yes, he had a temporal problem, affliction. But when you're reading in Isaiah 38, what does he say? When he's asking for a sign, what will be the sign given to me that I will go back up to the house of the Lord? That's where his heart is. His heart's at the Lord's house. Lord, assure me that I'm going to be going back up to the Lord's house. And so he says here, even a meat offering and a drink offering. 
I mean, these, these offerings have theological content. When you're in Dr. Morales' class and he's taking you through those opening chapters of Leviticus, pay attention. You need to understand the theological content, the burnt offering, the meat offering, this trespass offering, and so on. Because as you're reading through the rest of your Bible, singing psalms, reading in the prophets, even in the New Testament, there will be specific offerings that come up in the text. And you got to know the theological content that is contained in that to understand the significance of what's happening. The meat offering was fine flour and oil mingled with, with, with frankincense, and it was added, as you know, most of the time to other offerings. And so the people would bring from their own pantry, as it were, they would bring it to the priest. Part of it would be put on the sacrifice and burned. Part of it would be kept for the priest. But then when the priest was offering a meat offering, the whole thing got burnt. All of it was laid on top of the sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that it was never eaten by the one who brought it. It was never eaten by the one who brought it. It was given to the Lord. Here is thanksgiving for God's mercies. The Lord is going to give his humbled, broken, contrite, repentant people that are turning to him abundant cause for the thanksgiving of his mercies. The drink offering similarly, right? Taken from the the vineyard, (coughs) wine, the best of wine, poured out at the altar continually, right? Morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice, and on many other occasions. And it prefigures all sorts of things. It prefigures, of course, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ being poured out. You have language reminiscent of this at the institution of the supper. But Paul takes it and applies it when he speaks to Timothy and when he's speaking to the Philippians and he applies it to himself in terms of his service, that his life is being poured out like a drink offering, offered complete devotion, unreserved, unqualified devotion to the Lord himself out of love and gratitude for all that God had done for him in the gospel. He says, well, I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I have to glorify God with my body and my spirit, which are the Lord's. And so he says, my whole life is one of a a drink offering that is being poured out before the Lord. And so when the Lord says that he'll turn to his people with a blessing, it's speaking about the plentiful enjoyment of God himself in his ordinances. The plentiful enjoyment of God himself in his ordinances. My friends, this is the greatest blessing, this side of glory. Nearness to the Lord, the sight of the Lord, communion with the Lord, fellowship with the Lord, a sense of the Lord's presence to be able to enjoy the Lord himself in the ordinances that he's given to us. How we ought to crave this and hunger for it, long for it. We ought to fast and pray for it, not only for ourselves, but for for others, for the house of God generally, that he would come. And as we sang in Psalm 80, that he would look upon the walls that are broken down and the boars that have broken through the hedges, that he would remember the son, his son, the son of man at his right hand, and that he would come and revive his cause. He would bless her and pour out blessing. Every other blessing flows from this blessing. Are there others? Yes but they're all derived from this one, having God himself in his ordinances. And you see it here. 
Then the Lord, verse 18, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. You can read straight through the following verses. Verse 25, and I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. And this is language for you to take up into your mouth. Oh, God in heaven, restore the years that the locusts have eaten. They've ravaged us in my own life. They've ravaged us as the collective people of God. Come, O Lord, and bring bounty. Rend the heavens and pour out the Spirit upon us. We see in this passage that that blessing always flows from brokenness. The blessing flows from brokenness. As we read both in James and in 1 Peter, we clothe ourselves with humility, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due course, he will lift us up. The way up is truly, in every way, the way down. It was so for the Savior, and it is so for all who follow in his train as well. Well, today, as your seminary sets apart time for fasting and prayer, we are to devote ourselves to tending our own hearts in turning to the Lord. We're being called today collectively to turn to the Lord. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty and ever blessed God in heaven, the God who is high, high above the heavens, who looks upon the earth as a footstool, the God who is clothed in majesty, and in glory. O Lord in heaven, we confess that our thoughts of you are far too paltry. O Lord, grant that we might have the Lord our God lifted high within our own bosoms, and grant that we indeed might be taken down, down, down into the dust to prostrate ourselves before your presence, to own to acknowledge and to confess and to repent of our sins, to see that our sins are against thee and thee only, that we have done this evil in your sight. O Lord, give to us, we pray, that broken and contrite spirit, which you do not despise, which you look upon, and which you draw nigh to. O Lord, bless us, we pray. Turn us that we might be turned. Grant that our hearts would be drawn with the cords of the gospel afresh to thy presence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.